Good morning to all of you watching online, including our guests staying at the church, and welcome to week four of our Christmas series that we've been calling The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. So in case you're just now tuning in with us and jumping into the series for the first time, each week we've been focusing on one of the five women listed in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So if, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you see that genealogy, immediately following it is the Christmas story, the story of Jesus entering into humanity by being born as a human. So, so this, this genealogy that starts out Matthew chapter 1 and the five women that are included in it are really kind of meant as an introduction to that Christmas story and therefore meant to teach us something about why Jesus came into this world in the first place. So, so you might say that our, our goal for the entire series is to help you better understand the meaning of the Christmas story by understanding each of these women's stories. So today, we're going to be specifically looking at the final woman that Matthew mentions in his genealogy before he gets to the mother of Jesus herself, and that woman is Bathsheba. Now, if that name rings a bell at all, it's probably likely in connection to the story of David and Bathsheba. Those two names are usually paired together. Pastor Ryan actually preached a message, actually two messages, on that story just about a month or so ago. So if you're not familiar with the details, I would really encourage you to go listen to those teachings. They're from our Faces of Sin series. You can find them on YouTube. They're called Sin and David and Sin and Remission. But, but for today, just so that we're all on the same page, because this story is going to come up a lot in this teaching, let me just give you the Cliff's Notes version of David and Bathsheba. So, so David, you've probably heard his name before, he's regarded across Scripture as the greatest king in the nation of Israel's history. He's even called a man after God's own heart. So, so that David makes a series of foolish and sinful and destructive decisions that results in him impregnating Bathsheba, who at that time was married to one of David's inner circle of soldiers. So that's really bad. So David tries to cover up his sin in a number of creative ways, but ultimately what he does is he resorts to having Bathsheba's husband murdered so that he can take her as his own wife and then make this pregnancy look like it's on the up and up. So God then uses the prophet Nathan to go and confront David about these sins. David confesses, he's forgiven, but he still reaps consequences like the death of his child and years of violence that spreads throughout his family. Now, like I said, if, if you've heard of Bathsheba at all, it's probably in the context of this story that, that really focuses on David and his sin. But the goal of this teaching is to tell you Bathsheba's side of the story. So, so when I started to prepare this sermon and, and get my notes ready, my, my guiding question was, who was Bathsheba? And let me just be really transparent on the front end with you. I, I began this whole process thinking that I knew Bathsheba, and I quickly found out I really didn't know her at all. For starters, what the Bible has to say about her is much bigger than just this one episode with David recorded in 2 Samuel. We're going to see her again in the book of 1 Kings, but there she's going to be an aging mother. Her son Solomon's going to be a grown man now, and she's going to be helping him come to the throne as king. And we, we learn more about the kind of woman that she is by reading some of Solomon's own writings that are preserved for us in Scripture, writings like Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and things like that. Now, after I spent some time digging into these sources and trying to pull out clues and standing back and trying to see the big picture, the, the main conclusion I've reached is that Bathsheba was more than just 
a damsel in distress. She was more than just the victim in the story of David's sin. She was a real human being made in God's image. And that means, like all of us, that she was complex and she had a story of her own. So so what I want to do for the rest of this teaching is to honor her by telling you her story as much as we can know it and showing you how her story can better help you understand your own. In other words, by answering the question, who was Bathsheba, what I hope we also do along the way is help you to answer the question, who am I? So to answer those questions, we're going to do something a little different at this point. Normally, what I would do right now is I would read a single passage of Scripture. We would then spend most of our time just kind of hanging out in that passage and unpacking specific verses in it. However, Since Bathsheba's story really spans six different books in the Bible, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk you through her life journey by looking at multiple different verses from multiple different books in the Bible. And as we do that, what I want to do is point out five different identities of Bathsheba, five different things that that across her life we see in Scripture defined who she was. So five different identities that defined Bathsheba. And if, if you're wondering at this point, What does that have to do with Christmas? Just wait and see. So let's begin with the very first verse in the Bible that talks about Bathsheba. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Here's what it says. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, this, of course, is the beginning of the story of David's great sin that we were discussing just a second ago, but it also shows us the very first defining factor of Bathsheba's identity. Before we know her name or before we know anything about her family or her history, we are just simply told that she was very beautiful. Now, Maybe Bathsheba did a really good job taking care of herself. Maybe she ate healthy and she exercised and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, her physical beauty was something that even if she could amplify it, she couldn't create it. She didn't earn it. She was born with it. So so identity number one is what I want to call unearned possessions. Bathsheba possessed this beauty, but she didn't create it. Now, all kinds of other things fall under that category, maybe some things that resonate more with you, things like intelligence, athletic skill, above average height. You could think about people in the NBA. That really helps some of them out, Shaquille O'Neal. Talents like singing or acting, inherited wealth, and we could keep going and going with this list. The point is, while, while each of those possessions we just named can maybe be shaped and maximized by us, they do not exist because we earned them. And you're going to notice this with most of the other identity categories we discuss, being defined by these unearned possessions is not always something you choose yourself, but often something that others choose for you. It's an identity that's forced on you from the outside. Look at Bathsheba. Bathsheba is not calling herself beautiful here. The narrator of the story is calling her that to reflect how David saw her. Now, Obviously, let me make a couple caveats here. Sometimes these unearned possessions can be liabilities, right? They can hurt you. At at other times, though, they can be benefits. And, And there's nothing automatically wrong with benefiting from these things to some degree. Of course, it could be wrong. But what I'm trying to say is is there's really no need to apologize 
for just simply being attractive or smart or good at sports or being born rich or for those things opening up opportunities for you, again, to some degree. But as we see with Bathsheba, and and I'm sure many of us have experienced this ourselves, when these things, when these unearned possessions, when they move from just being one part of our identity to being the main way that we're defined, what, what tends to happen is people don't just notice you anymore, they objectify and they stereotype you. I know we, we all know this from experience, either we've experienced it ourselves or we've seen it in others. What happens is you become the smart girl who everybody really just wants in their group to get a good grade, or you become the little guy who everybody just assumes is not going to be good at this sport, so he's never picked for the team, or you become the handicapped man, who again, everybody assumes can't do things for themselves, or the token minority that directors place in a movie to make everybody feel better about the lack of diversity in it. We could keep going again and again and again, but, but all of those are examples of how, of how an unearned possession makes somebody into an object and a stereotype. David, in this story, didn't see Bathsheba as a fellow human made in the image of God. He saw her as a beautiful object that could satisfy his lust. That's why later in the story, 2 Samuel 11, verses 4 through 5, this is what we're told. Listen to the rapid-fire nature of this description. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. The the rapid-fire nature of how that's narrated, no real details. And then the fact that she's just simply called the woman at the end is is really meant to show us just how impersonal this whole encounter was. This, This was not David being madly in love with Bathsheba because he had spent some time getting to know her and talk with her and laugh with her. And you know, one thing led to another. That would have been sinful too. But at least in that scenario, he would be treating her as an actual person rather than just somebody he desires for her outward beauty. But instead, David barely even knew Bathsheba's name when he sent for her. And once he got what he wanted, he sent her away. This is Bathsheba having an identity forced upon her that ultimately led to her being objectified and taken advantage of. But I said this earlier, Bathsheba is complex. She's not one-dimensional. She is not just simply a beautiful woman. There is more to her story and other factors that shaped her identity. So let's move forward now chronologically in the story and see what those other factors are. The second thing that we see comes up just one verse after we're told that Bathsheba is beautiful. So listen now to 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba? Now listen to the rest of the description. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now later in the very next chapter, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, Bathsheba is called David's wife. And then even later in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, after her son Solomon has grown, she's twice referred to as Solomon's mother. I think you see where I'm going with this. Bathsheba, like virtually every human throughout history, is defined by her relationship to other people. So that's, that's identity number two that I want to point out here, relationships with other people. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. For example, I just recently traveled down to North Carolina, that's where I'm from, and I just happened to randomly see 
one of my uncles while I was visiting my parents' grave. He's the caretaker there at the cemetery. So, so I walked over to him, and it became pretty obvious that he didn't know who I was. I didn't know him very well growing up, and we, we've obviously talked over the years. I think his memory is starting to fail. So, so I had to literally say to him, I'm here visiting my mom and dad's grave. And, and I think eventually he, he called him because I will, in his eyes, I will always be connected to my mom and dad. I will always be known to him as Jimmy and Narena's boy. And, and that's okay by me. I actually, I actually wear that as a badge of honor. And I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with that. Many of us love being identified as the son or daughter of, the husband or wife of, the mom and dad of, so and so. God made us to reflect his image by being in relationship with other humans. So it's only natural to find joy and purpose in those identities. But, there's always a but, sometimes having our identities defined by our relationships with others, even if they're good relationships, sometimes that can feel like a heavy burden that keeps us from moving forward and discovering who we truly are, like, like a long shadow that we just can't ever outrun. Let me explain what that might look like with, with, with more of a modern illustration before we return to Bathsheba. So let me just say this on the front end. You may or may not like George W. Bush, but whether you like him or not, I think this illustration will, will still prove my point. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you enjoy the man, but, but here it is. So George W. Bush, he told his teenage daughters that he was thinking about running for president. This probably would have been 1998, 1999. So you, you might think in that scenario that they would be excited, right? We'll be famous and we'll get to live in the White House. We'll probably get to travel all over the world. But that's not how they reacted. They were actually angry and afraid because they knew he had been governor of Texas for a while. So they had a little bit of experience. They knew there was going to be a spotlight on them that would not be on other people. You see, if, if he became president, they would no longer just be Jenna and Barbara Bush. They would now be President Bush's Daughters. So what that means is any foolish mistakes that they would make in college or any sufferings that they might experience personally, those things might stay private if they were just the daughters of regular citizens. But as daughters of the president, those things, of course, would become national headlines. And, and those things would make not just them look bad, but their dad and his government look bad as well. So, so, so these young women, not only were they going to have to figure out their own identities as young women entering into adulthood, which is hard enough, they would have to do so while carrying the weight of their family and their nation. Now, look at Bathsheba through that lens. We're going to talk more about this in a second, but, but the suffering that David's sin drug Bathsheba through, that would have been awful enough if David and her husband and father had been just no-name peasants, right? Still would have been hard. But because David was king and her husband and father were high-ranking soldiers in David's inner circle, what that ultimately means is she, she would have had a spotlight shown on her suffering that, think about this, led to it being included for posterity in the most popular book in the world. And again, because she was connected to these very powerful people, because she was defined by her relationship with them, she would have a spotlight shown on her suffering that no doubt would make it heavier and more shameful for her. Not only would she have to figure out how to move forward out of this trauma, she would also have to figure out how to do so while carrying the weight of a king and a kingdom on her shoulders. 
And that, that, really, that really brings us now to the third factor that defined Bathsheba's identity. For almost the entire remainder of this David and Bathsheba story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Bathsheba is repeatedly called the wife of Uriah. Now you might think, well, yeah, what's the problem with that? She was the wife of Uriah. Well, what's interesting is she's even called that after Uriah's dead and once she gets married to David. So what the author is doing very obviously on purpose is, is he's continuing to call her the wife of Uriah to make sure that we, the readers, we, the audience of this story, don't forget what's really going on here. Bathsheba is only married to David because he stole her by murdering another man. That's what that title, the wife of Uriah, that's what it would mean from David's perspective. But think about what that would mean from Bathsheba's perspective. This would be a reminder that she was taken advantage of by a powerful man for his own pleasure. She lost a husband and a child as a result. And in the middle of all that, she probably had to deal with the whispers and sideways glances from the people who had seen things or maybe heard rumors and jumped to conclusions. So, so now, after being defined by her unearned possession of beauty and by relationships with other people, by continuing to be called the wife of Uriah, now Bathsheba is defined by this third identity that we see in her story, her trauma. Now, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Rahab, and, and one of the major ideas we pulled out of that is that all of us are guilty of committing sin, and therefore, all of us need to be saved from the power and the punishment of it. But now in Bathsheba's story, we're really seeing the, the flip side of that same coin, not only have all of us committed sin, but I think it's safe to say to some degree, all of us have had sin committed against us. And so often when that happens, there's a trauma to it. And the trauma of, of that sin that's committed against us, it often has a way of sticking with us through things like misplaced guilt, shame, fear, psychological damage. And those things then begin to affect the other spheres of our life, our marriages, parenting, work, friendships, even the way that we relate to and worship God. So, so there's really, you can kind of think of it as when, when, when people go through trauma, there's two extremes of responding to that, and of course, a lot of things in the middle as well. But for some people, the shock of their suffering after they go through trauma, the shock of their suffering will cause them to shut down and become what counselors call codependent on others, and they'll never move forward in discovering who they truly are. That's one extreme. But for others, the pendulum swings the other way. The shock of their suffering will cause them not to shut down, but to, to surge forward and define their identity for themselves, not by becoming codependent, but by just casting aside all semblance of dependence. And, and this is pretty much the whole point of the song, Let It Go, from the movie Frozen, which I'm sure you weren't expecting that reference in this context. But if you have little girls, you've probably seen this movie. Even if you haven't, you've probably seen this movie. It was a cultural phenomenon for a while, a few years ago. But in the movie, Queen Elsa, after she has her own experience of trauma, she finally decides she's just going to build herself a, a palace out in the mountains where she can be alone and free from judgment and restriction. This is a place where, according to the lyrics of the song, the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. The perfect girl is gone. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. This is a place where she can 
let it go. What's ironic is, is our kids and we ourselves, we often belt this song out like it's this anthem of positivity. But if you pay attention to the story, letting it go is really what leads to all kinds of further pain and damage to Elsa and the people she loves. Now, now I'm not telling you that to make you stop singing the song. It's a catchy song. Sing the song. There's no problem with it. I'm telling you all that because if you move forward in Bathsheba's story, I think her, her life, the way that it looks after her episode of trauma, the way she responds to her trauma is a lot closer to the let it go extreme than it is to the shut down extreme. So, so let me explain what I mean. Just track with me as I walk you through this. So, so up to this point in the story, I think we would all agree Bathsheba has very much been a passive character. A lot has been done to her and her different identities have been forced on her. But we see a very different Bathsheba when we get to 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. So, so now, many years have passed. David is now old and decrepit, and Bathsheba's son Solomon is a grown man. Now, in other places in Scripture, we're told that God had chosen, David himself had even promised Bathsheba that Solomon would succeed David as king. Solomon is supposed to be king. But because David's old and not paying attention and doesn't really know what's going on, another of his sons named Adonijah seizes that opportunity. He rallies support and he declares himself to be king. So Solomon's supposed to be king, but Adonijah has seized the opportunity and made himself king. So Nathan, always coming in the clutch here, Nathan the prophet goes to Bathsheba and he says this to her, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, and listen to this part, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. You see, rule number one in ancient palace politics is if you're going to seize the throne, you better eliminate all of your potential rivals and their family. So, so now Bathsheba's life is in danger. All of a sudden, it looks like her story is once again going to be dictated by another power-hungry man. But this time, what we're going to see, Bathsheba isn't going to be just a passive role player. She's going to become an active playmaker. And we see this especially in her speech. So, so back in the, in the David and Bathsheba story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we only get to hear Bathsheba's voice one time in that whole story when she comes out and says, I am pregnant. That's really just two Hebrew words. That's all she speaks back in that story. But now, across these two chapters in 1 Kings, she speaks over 100 words. And, and, and we're not talking about, these aren't like how's the weather kind of meaningless conversations among, you know, neighbors and friends. These are high stakes conversations with King David, King Solomon, and the very man who is threatening her and her son's lives. The renowned Hebrew scholar from UC Berkeley, his name is Robert Alter, he, he describes the change in Bathsheba like this. Listen to his words. Whereas the beautiful young wife was accorded no dialogue except for her report to David of her pregnancy, now the mature Bathsheba will show herself a mistress of language, shrewd, energetic, and politically astute. 
So, so Bathsheba's gone through this trauma, but it hasn't resulted in her shutting down, at least not in the long term. It has resulted in her surging forward, right? That's what we see here. This woman has, has really developed a, a certain political shrewdness and a political astuteness and a certain intelligence when it comes to palace politics. She's surging forward. But even beyond that, even beyond that, what we really see at this stage in her life is just how powerful Bathsheba has become. Let me, let me give you an example from 1 Kings chapter 2. So, so David does finally declare Solomon to be the true king. So Adonijah relinquishes his claim to the throne and he submits to his brother. But he also wants something from his brother. Instead of going to King Solomon directly, though, he decides to go to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, to make his request. So listen to what Adonijah says to Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 17. And he, Adonijah, said to Bathsheba, please ask King Solomon, listen to this part, he will not refuse you, please ask King Solomon to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Did you hear that? Bathsheba has such a great influence on her son, who's now the king, that Adonijah is confident that the king will do what she says. And just to add weight to this, I want you to listen now to how King Solomon himself treats his mother when she comes to him with this request in verse 19. Listen to this. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon, this is her son, to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her, and listen to this, and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. The king who's usually the one getting bowed down to, the king bows down to Bathsheba and then even has a seat brought in for her to sit at the place of honor and authority next to him. So, so now think about what's happening here versus what happened earlier in Bathsheba's story. Up to this point, things and people outside herself have been defining Bathsheba, but now we see a woman who has worked hard to gain power and control of her own Story. I mentioned this earlier, but if, if you read through some of Solomon's writings that are preserved for us, like Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, he repeatedly speaks very highly of his mother. You can go on one of your Bible apps and, and you can search the word mother and go to Proverbs, go to Song of Solomon, and you can see this for yourself. She has obviously worked hard to be a good mother and to gain lasting influence in her son's life. And now because of that, she is in a position not simply to have power exercised against her, but to exercise power herself. So the fourth factor that shapes Bathsheba's identity, we could call it a lot of things, but, but since it's really like the mirror opposite of that first identity, which was unearned possessions, I'm going to call this fourth factor, this fourth identity, hard-earned power. Now, now that we're at this point in the story, you, you might be thinking, finally, and finally, we get to see Bathsheba as this strong and independent woman who's, who's broken free from the past, and she's let it go in the words of the song, and she's, she's created, finally, she's created her true and best self, and she can live in peace. Unfortunately, I don't think it's that simple. Again, let me be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong, of course, with hard-earned power, but as the old saying goes, power corrupts. And, and what I mean by that in this context is, is if hard-earned power becomes the core of your identity, if it takes too strong a hold on your life with nothing to keep it in check, 
then too often that power will not simply benefit you, it will also end up harming others. And that's exactly what happens in this episode of Bathsheba's life. So remember, Adonijah has come to her and he's, he's asked her to take this request to King Solomon because he will not refuse you. But if you read to the end, you find out that actually King Solomon does indeed refuse her. As a matter of fact, when, when Bathsheba brings this request to Solomon, Solomon is so angry at the audacity of Adonijah, and, and he perceives that this is really just one more scheme for him to take the throne. So he's so angry at this that he actually commands for Adonijah to be killed. Now, let me be clear. Adonijah's demise is ultimately his own fault. He's made a series of very foolish decisions, but, but it, it really does bring up the question, what does this show us about Bathsheba? You might think there, there's at least two ways to interpret this. One way to interpret this is to say that maybe, maybe Bathsheba thought that she had more power than she actually did. Maybe she should have recognized that the king could refuse her, that he wasn't obligated to listen to her. And so maybe she should have told Adonijah, no, I'm not taking your request. This is a bad request. The king's not going to like it. So that, that's one way to interpret it. Another way, though, is to say that, that maybe Bathsheba, who, think about it, at this point in the story, she's proven herself to be very intelligent and very politically shrewd, Maybe Bathsheba knew exactly what she was doing, and she did not fail in her objective. In, in other words, according to this interpretation, Bathsheba knew that Solomon would react angrily to Adonijah's request, and so she took the request to him on purpose, knowing that it would result in the death of the man who had threatened her and her son's lives. You, you might say she was playing a literal Game of Thrones. But, but listen, regardless of which way you interpret this story, whether Bathsheba's hard-earned power failed or whether it succeeded, the result is the same, isn't it? Not peace in life, but just more violence and death. But even though this is the, the last episode of her life recorded for us in the Old Testament, it's not really the final chapter. For, for almost a thousand years after this event, it would appear as though violence and tragedy was going to have the final word in Bathsheba's story. But then, in the words of John the Baptist's father, like the sunrise piercing the darkness, Jesus came and breathed new life into her story. Remember, the entire reason that we're looking at Bathsheba's life in the first place today is because she's one of the five women listed in Jesus's genealogy, Jesus's family tree in Matthew chapter 1. So, so God had promised back in the Old Testament that the true and everlasting king, what they called the Messiah, would come from David's royal line. So that's why Matthew actually begins his genealogy with these words, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, listen to this part, the son of David. So Matthew wants us to see, one of the reasons he's writing this genealogy, he wants us to see Jesus's ancestral connection back to David. But pause and think about a, a, a couple of things. Matthew, in, in order to do that, Matthew did not have to include Bathsheba in this genealogy to show us the connection between Jesus and David. Most genealogies of this day did not include women anyway. But let's take that a step further. God himself did not have to connect Jesus to David through Bathsheba. Why? Because David had, according to that culture, this was something that happened, David had other wives. 
As a matter of fact, I think this is safe to say, if God were like us, he almost certainly would not have chosen Bathsheba to be the vehicle through whom Jesus came into this world. Because in that culture, genealogies were like your resume. And just like we still do today, people tweaked their resumes by leaving out what might make them look bad. So in the first century Middle East, like when Matthew's writing here, if a man was trying to establish his credentials to prove that he's the rightful king, he almost certainly would have tried to avoid any kind of connection to an ancient scandal like the one that involved Bathsheba. But thankfully, God is not like us. So when God chose Bathsheba and then inspired Matthew to make sure he explicitly listed her in Jesus' family tree, God knows that that's not going to look good for Jesus in the eyes of the power players of the world. But that's not the point. The point is this. We don't get to choose our family, but Jesus did. And this is the family he chose. These are the people that Jesus wants to be associated with. When he entered into humanity on that very first Christmas through the line of Bathsheba, in effect, what he was saying was, I want to identify with people like her. I want to be able to sympathize with how they feel so that I can heal them. So I'm coming here on this earth as a human to experience the same things she experienced. So so when Jesus came to this earth through the line of Bathsheba, he was saying, I too will be defined by my outward appearance. Bathsheba was desired and objectified for her beauty. The prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus was not desired. He was even ignored for his lack of beauty. When Jesus comes through the line of Bathsheba, he's saying, I too will be defined by my relationship with others. Bathsheba had to bear the burden of being identified as the daughter and wife of betrayed warriors and the mistress of a king. Jesus was rejected as a mere carpenter's son. And even worse, in the eyes of the people in that day, he was identified as the son of Mary. You know, that woman who rumor says conceived him out of wedlock. And then when Jesus came to us through the line of Bathsheba, he was saying, I too will be defined by my power. Bathsheba, remember, was approached as a person of power to gain a favor by a man who really wanted her dead. Jesus was chased by crowds to work miracles of power, even though many in those crowds didn't really believe in him and would ultimately cry out for his death. But most importantly, when Jesus entered into this world on that very first Christmas through the line of Bathsheba, he was saying, I too will be defined by my trauma. I will be betrayed by my family and closest friends, conspired against by those in power, falsely accused of crimes I didn't do, and ridiculed, tortured, and murdered by the very people I came to serve. And what Jesus is saying is the reason that I'll go through all of that is not just to redeem you from the sins you committed. That's true, but there's more. I will allow these sins to be committed against me so that I can also redeem and heal you from the sins committed against you. You see, the most surprising thing in my mind about Bathsheba being included in Jesus' genealogy is that out of all the five women in his list, she's the only one he doesn't actually call by her real name. Instead, listen to what Matthew calls her. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. So he's going through this genealogy, and he gets to this part, and he says, And David was the father of Solomon, 
by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. Bathsheba's been called that before, hasn't she? You remember? This is the exact same description that the author of 2 Samuel uses to remind his audience of the sin, scandal, and trauma that happened in Bathsheba's life as a result of David's sin. So the question is, why would Matthew want to remind us of that here in Jesus' genealogy? Why not just use Bathsheba's name like he did for all the other women? Unfortunately, he doesn't tell us. But based on what I know from the rest of Scripture and based on the heart of the gospel, part of the answer has to be this. I'm confident. Bathsheba is called the wife of Uriah in Jesus' genealogy to remind us that when we become a part of Jesus' story, it doesn't mean that the previous painful and ugly chapters of our story get erased or forgotten or scrubbed over. What it means is that those chapters get redeemed. And instead of being stains that subtract from our beauty, they become brushstrokes that add to the glorious masterpiece that God is creating us to be. And just so you know that I'm not making this up, this is actually a biblical truth. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains it to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You hear what he said there? He doesn't just say that our affliction, our pain, our suffering, our trauma, he doesn't just say that it will give way to glory. He says that that affliction is actually preparing our glory. As hard as it is to believe in this moment, and I know that some of you are feeling this way deeper than I am, as hard as it is to believe in the moment, through faith in Jesus and what he accomplished for us, our future glory will be made all the greater by the pain and suffering and trauma that we've experienced now. So much greater that what, what seems so heavy right now will one day seem so light compared to the weight of the beauty, strength, and life that awaits us. Think about, think about some of the greatest story endings that you've ever read in a book or watched in a movie. What makes them so great? Here, here's my attempt at an answer. I think that those great endings are great not in spite of, but precisely because of the painful and traumatic scenes that came before. We shed tears when we watch Aragorn and the whole city of Minas Tirith bow down in honor before those four tiny hobbits because we watch those same hobbits leave their homes and lose their innocence to get to this moment. And, and we find it so beautiful to see the grown-up Harry standing on platform nine and three quarters and telling his son that he's named after the greatest men he ever knew because we watched Harry lose those men and countless others in his fight against Voldemort. And it feels so satisfying to us to watch Captain America dancing with Peggy Carter in their living room because over the course of eight movies, we watched him sacrifice a normal family life to save the universe. And why, why are little girls so mesmerized when that glass slipper fits on Cinderella's foot and not on her stepsisters? Why are they so mesmerized by that? Because they've watched the scenes which came before where Cinderella is mocked and bullied by those same stepsisters. Here's my point. The stories with the greatest endings are often the ones with the most painful beginnings 
and middles. That's why Jesus came on that first Christmas, not to erase those painful beginnings and middles, but to redeem and transform them into a glorious ending that ironically will never actually end. Now, you might be thinking after hearing all that, well, that sounds really nice, but how do we know it's really true? How how do we know that that's really the lesson we're meant to learn from the wife of Uriah being included in Jesus' genealogy? And my answer to that question is simple. Look at Jesus himself. A second ago, I told you that Jesus was defined by his trauma, but I didn't really finish making my point there. You see, Jesus wasn't just the Messiah who got crucified. He will forever be known as the crucified Messiah. When Jesus rose from the dead, his body was what we call glorified. It was made new and permanent, no longer subject to death and decay. But we're also told that that body still bore the nail scars in his hands and the mark of the spear in his side. What that means is that Jesus will bear the scars of his trauma For all eternity. But those scars will not take away from his glory. They only add to it. That's why in the great Christ hymn that the Apostle Paul recites for us in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about Jesus humbling himself through death on the cross. And then and only then does he say this, therefore, because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus' exaltation and glory didn't happen in spite of his suffering on the cross. It happened because of his suffering on the cross. So again, I'll say, this is why Jesus was born into this world on that first Christmas. To take the greatest trauma in the history of history and turn it into the greatest glory. And the reason that he did that is so that he could do the same for everyone who will trust in him. Bathsheba spent years of her life being defined by people and things outside her control. And then near the end of her life, she, in a certain sense, took matters into her own hands and began to steer the ship of her own story. But what we saw is none of those things actually brought peace into her life. None of those things were a safe foundation for defining who she really was. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons she's included in Jesus' genealogy is to teach us what is the safe foundation for defining who we are. And that foundation, the fifth and last identity in our outline today, is Jesus himself. The answer to the question, who am I, is not to let others define you, and it's not to define yourself. The answer is, let Jesus define you. All those other things, even the negative and the painful things, they do indeed shape us. We can't really help that. But in Jesus Christ, what we see in Bathsheba's story, what we see by her being included in this genealogy, in Jesus Christ, those things don't have to define us. In addition to what we've already mentioned, one further truth of Christmas, one further truth of Jesus entering into the story of humanity by becoming a human himself is to teach us that this story isn't really about us after all. It's all about him. The author has entered into his own story. And what that means 
is that you and I, we weren't made to be characters in our own individual books. We were made to be the supporting cast in his book. Our characters complete their arc. Our plots resolve their tension and fulfill their purpose. And our pain and trauma find a healing hero only as our stories are folded into the story of Jesus. So, so after hearing the tale of Bathsheba's life recorded for us in the Old Testament, when we, when we get to her place in Jesus' genealogy, it's almost like a light bulb moment, a moment where we realize, you know, I thought I was watching a movie called Bathsheba, but now I realize that was really only a scene in a better movie called Jesus. What I thought was the hopeless tragedy of a woman who lived long ago is really part of a beautiful epic that has brought hope to people all over the world for centuries and will be told throughout the halls of eternity. So now we we come back to where we started with that guiding question I told you about. Who was Bathsheba? She's one of the women who gave us Jesus, a beautiful and beloved character in the story of our King. The more important question is, who are you? Jesus came to free you from identities that destroy, and he gave his life to purchase for you an identity that brings healing and peace by redeeming you from your sins, the sins you commit and even the sins committed against you. Jesus came to invite you into his story. My hope is that this Christmas, you'll accept his invitation. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I think all of us can look into Bathsheba's story and see elements of our own being defined by others, being defined by things outside our control, and even at times trying to take matters into our own hands. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and and my prayer for all of us is that your spirit and your word would help us to see ourselves honestly, doing it that way, trying to have identities forced on us or doing it ourselves never really leads to joy and life and fulfillment. There may be glimmers of it but almost always leads to pain and destruction and hurt. And I know that I'm praying over people who've experienced their own trauma, some more than others. My prayer for them is that they would see in the story of Bathsheba, and especially as she's included into Jesus' story, that only through Jesus can their trauma be redeemed, can it be turned into a glorious ending. So my prayer for everyone that's listening to my voice, is that they would bring their story into Jesus' story, that they would allow him to heal them, that they would find their meaning and their purpose and who they truly are in and through Jesus Christ because the story is all about him. This Christmas, I pray that we'll remember that this thing is all about you and we'll find our greatest joy, our greatest life, and our greatest glory only in and through Jesus. So thank you, Father, for sending him on Christmas to come and bear our sins away, to come and rewrite our stories. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.